Welcome to Talks at Stellenbosch Uni, Stellenbosch University's podcast where we talk about current topics and innovative research done at the university. Here's your host, Angelique Dreyer. Today we are in conversation with Dr. Rizwane Rumani, who is a research psychologist, registered counsellor and lecturer at the psychology department at Stellenbosch University. Now she conducts research in the area of health psychology, focusing on women's health and reproductive health. Dr. Rumani, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Angelique. Doc, I see that you've been selected as one of 51 black academics from across South Africa to participate in the Black Academics Advancement Program in 2020. Can you tell us more about this program? What does it aim to achieve? The Black Academic Advancement Program is a joint venture between the National Research Foundation and the First Rand Foundation. And this program is seen as an intervention aimed at promoting the development of black academics by accelerating the training of doctoral and postdoctoral candidates to develop their research training and accelerate their progression to become established researchers. The importance of a doctoral qualification for those working in higher education is increasingly emphasized. According to the National Development Plan, the goal is to have 75% of university academic staff with a doctoral level qualification by the year 2030. PhD qualifications are important because they form the basis for conducting high quality research. Also, having academic staff with PhDs means that they can supervise PhDs. In addition to the necessity of increasing the number of academic staff with doctoral qualifications, transformation in higher education needs to be addressed. According to the NRF, there were 3,392 NRF-rated researchers in South Africa in 2015. And of these, only 26% were black and 31% were female. The program is therefore aimed at addressing gaps in qualification and transformation within higher education. With this in mind, the program supports two streams of candidates. The first being academic staff who are registered for their doctoral studies, and the second for staff who have recently completed their doctoral studies and would like a postdoc opportunity. I applied for this program because I was already employed at Stellenbosch University when I obtained my PhD in 2017. And PhD graduates typically work as postdocs after obtaining their qualifications. And this gives them the space to write and publish research. I was lucky that I was employed at a university, but at the same time, I felt as though I was missing out on the opportunity to focus on research and publish because of the competing roles of my academic position. That sounds like a really excellent initiative and you're about eight months into this program now. How has it benefited you so far? Have you been able to write articles and conduct your research? So thus far, I've benefited from the support to buy out my teaching this year. Even though I really miss it, um, I miss the lecturing. This space has allowed me to write a few papers and I feel as though I've been more productive on that front than in previous years. 
But I also do see funding for new research projects that aims to examine psychological distress among men and women seeking infertility treatment. And because of COVID-19, I'm unable to collect data for this project. I've completed the preparation work, obtained ethical approval, selected staff to work on the project, and my co-investigators and I are just waiting for the right time to conduct field work. The project is an African collaboration as we're working with a team in Ghana, and they too are unable to collect research at this time. Oh, I see. Well, hopefully you'll be able to get back into that soon enough. I also see that your research is mostly conducted in the field of health psychology. And I see that you're also a national delegate for South Africa at the European Health Psychology Society. Can you tell us more about what is health psychology and how is it relevant for our context? So the textbook definition of health, health psychology is that it is the study of psychological and behavioral processes in health, illness, and healthcare. Basically, health psychology is concerned with the study of health from a psychological perspective. When we think of illness, we think of symptoms, diagnosis, and treatment of illness. We think of visiting doctors and taking medication. Most people do not think about health from a psychological perspective, but psychology determines how we experience health, how we seek health care, and how we adhere or fail to adhere to treatment prescribed by doctors. Our thinking and behavior can help us promote and maintain health. Sometimes we know what behavior is beneficial and damaging for us, but continue to engage in unhealthy behaviors. We know that we need to have a healthy diet, not consume too much alcohol, exercise regularly, avoid stress, and not smoke. Yet many of us continue to engage in behaviors that may shorten our lives. As psychologists, we want to improve lives and we want, to li- we want people to live longer and have a good quality of life. And so in health psychology, we want to understand behavior and develop interventions. And health psychologists make use of scientific studies that try to understand in a systematic and verified manner how psychological, behavioral, and sociocultural factors are involved in physical health and illness. And now in many countries, health psychology is well established and health psychologists are employed at hospitals and other treatment centers to work with patients by supporting them and applying interventions that may improve their quality of life, increase adherence to treatment and and much more. But in psychology, we don't have this. And in addition, in South Af- um, I mean, in South Africa, we don't have this. And in addition, in South Africa, we have increasing rates of non-communicable, non-communicable diseases or NCDs, which are also known as chronic diseases or non-infectious diseases. And examples of these are cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and cancers. And these diseases are often called silent killers and can shorten our lifespan and can impair our quality of life. Mm -hmm. We need to understand how our context influences health behaviors, diagnosis and treatment of illness. Illness experience, quality of life, psychological well-being and adherence to treatment is important. 
So health psychology can play a role in establishing a healthy nation. Mm. Wow, that's very interesting, Doc. And your research also continues to focus on specifically reproductive and women's health. Can you tell us why women's health is so important? Well, women account for more than half of the population in South Africa. And in the recent years, we've become more aware of the challenges that women face. These challenges include uh, are, are quite far-reaching. So things like gender-based violence, high levels of poverty and inequality, exploitation at work, inadequate access to basic services such as healthcare, water, electricity, and more. However, women play important roles in society, often caring for, educating, supporting others, and many women are leaders. And while there's quite a bit of research and funding directed to women and HIV and recently women and gender-based violence, women's health more generally has been neglected. Yet a high proportion of women are diagnosed with NCDs and communicable diseases. And it is vital that women are diagnosed with these conditions as early as possible, receive the correct treatment and receive support. To optimize well-being, we need to understand that the impact of the disease on health-related quality of life, and we need to be aware of barriers to diagnosis, treatment, and adherence. So illness can have broad-reaching consequences in our lives. Right now, we're witnessing an extreme version of this. But for people living with chronic illnesses, the illness often impacts their health-related quality of life. Illness and quality of life are quite complex, multifaceted aspects of, illness, aspects of health. And pain and other symptoms of illness can impact various areas of women's lives over time. So it can affect their work experience by playing a role in underperformance at work. It can negatively affect attendance at work and in some cases result in people losing their jobs or resigning because they are unable to work. At the same time, it can affect their social relationships and they may withdraw from interacting with friends because they do not feel well. So illness can also impact on close relationships, the partners and children. So we see that we need to holistically examine the impact of illness on patients' lives because of these factors being so interlinked and, and quite important. And your studies have been conducted in various fields, notably oncology and reproductive health. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar with breast cancer awareness campaigns, but you explore patient experience and distress. Can you tell us a bit more about your findings in this regard? Um, working with colleagues and postgraduate students in this Department of Psychology and with collaborators based in the UK and Germany, we are starting to understand more about the psychosocial aspects of cancer. We conduct qualitative and quantitative research. So this gives us an overview of these aspects and insights into patients' unique experiences. These studies are mostly among women with breast and cervical cancer and mostly at Tigerberg Hospital. The first aspect about these studies that I'd like to mention is how willing women are to engage in women's health research. 
Our researchers are often told by women that they are grateful for the opportunity to talk about their experiences with someone who's listening, who's willing to listen. And many women feel that speaking about their health issues is not socially acceptable and that people do not know how to respond to what they are experiencing when they tell them this. So the second observation that I have is that women engage in research because a lot of the times they tell us that they hope that something good can come of it. Women often tell us that they hope that their experience can benefit others. And I often wonder where this sort of altruism comes from. So as psychologists, we are interested in the mental health of patients. And in one of our studies, we surveyed over 200 patients with breast cancer, and we found that more than a third of participants met the criteria for elevated levels of distress. And more importantly, that social support and body change stress, which is the stress that patients have because of bodily changes as a a result of cancer treatment, like surgery, we found that these two factors were significant predictors of distress. And this means that it may be useful to screen patients for distress, especially those with limited social support or whose appearance have been affected by treatment. And perhaps we need to offer them more psychological support. And while that study gave us a nice overview of patient well-being or patient mental health, some of our qualitative studies give us a better idea of patient experiences. Our data tells us that there are varying reactions to a cancer diagnosis. These include shock, disbelief, and that many women rely on faith as a coping strategy throughout their treatment trajectory, and that helps them to manage distress. But there needs to be some balance because a a balance between a sense of agency and faith. So faith can be a positive coping strategy, but at the same time, it can be negative. So an example of faith being a negative strategy in health-seeking behavior is when a patient doesn't adhere to medical treatment, but rather opts to to let the outcome be determined by fate or a higher power. And when medical treatment is aimed at ameliorating cancer, this this is problematic and can actually put a patient's life at risk. However, faith is also beneficial when treatment is palliative and understanding these aspects of patients' lives can help doctors provide care that is acceptable to patients. And therefore, they may be more likely to comply with treatment adherence. And one of the biggest issues in oncology is timely diagnosis. Patients who prevent for screening when symptoms first appear have a much better chance of surviving cancer than patients who present to doctors with advanced stage cancer. And I've worked with two students who examined delayed health-seeking behavior. Claudia Swinney looked at what caused these delays in women with breast cancer, and Robin Williams is finalizing her research into delays in women with cervical cancer. And we're quite aware that there are structural barriers to seeking a cancer diagnosis. And these barriers include gaps in the healthcare referral system, sometimes limited financial resources. And this doesn't only mean the cost of healthcare itself, but also not having funds to get to a doctor 
or the fact that for some women going to the doctor means that they will not be working for that day and therefore not receive income for that day or even worse, the duration of treatment. In addition to this, women in both these studies reported two important barriers. The first is limited knowledge about breast cancer and cervical cancer and the second related to multiple roles that they played at home. So many will find it hard to believe that women are unaware or have limited awareness of female cancers, right? Breast cancer awareness programs are all over the place and October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And so how can patients not know about breast cancer? Cervical cancer information is not as as prevalent as breast cancer information, but it's gaining traction. But this finding indicates that there remains a gap and we need to find ways of making the information more accessible and probably increase awareness programs, especially at the primary healthcare levels and community levels. And furthermore, we need to stop the spread of misinformation and stigma surrounding female cancer. Another woman why reason why women um, another reason why women wait to see a doctor when they first notice their symptoms was that they often put themselves second and prioritize the needs of family members before their own. So, for instance, they would rather take care of their child's needs than focus on their own. And this can have devastating consequences for them and for their families. And I also notice that women are likely to seek care when these symptoms and experiences negatively impact those around them rather than themselves. So for example, women with cervical cancer reported that when their symptoms such as pain and bleeding during intercourse started affecting their romantic relationships, they were prompted to seek help. Understanding these factors that impair early cancer detection can tell us where we need to intervene. And now we need to find the best ways of intervening. Doc, are there any new areas of research that you'll be exploring in the near future? Um, Yes, there are. Um, I'm quite interested in how we use the internet in relation to health-seeking behaviour. I would like to know the extent to which we use the internet for information about our health and how we navigate the endless and often contradictory information available online to improve our health and well-being. The internet can be a helpful tool and source of support, but at the same time, the wrong information can be, can be harmful to our health. And I've worked with Dr. Marsha Popovac from the University of Buckingham in this area. We conducted some preliminary research online and developed a questionnaire of online health-seeking behavior. We found that participants used the internet for two main reasons. The first was to find information about an illness or disease. That is the extent to which they use the internet to self-diagnose, to prepare for consultations with doctors, and seek for information about health on behalf of family and friends. And a second reason why people use the internet is for support. Here, support was accessed through engaging in discussion forums, which may promote feelings of empowerment and allow patients to feel less isolated. And this is particularly helpful 
when patients may feel embarrassed to discuss the illness. And we are now going to analyze some data to explore the predictors of online health-seeking behavior. We would like to know uh, to what extent our personality, our age, gender, internet self-efficacy, which is how comfortable we are with using the internet, social anxiety and health anxiety impact our online health-seeking behavior. And we hope to have the answer to these questions in a few months. And I'd also like to know um, how online information seeking and support differs between patients with different chronic illnesses. So the field of cyber health psychology is novel and it's exciting. And I think it will be of increasing relevance in years to come. Wow, Dr. Imani, that is so interesting, all that you've shared with us today. Thank you for the excellent research you are doing. I do hope that the knowledge and understanding we glean from your research would not only help us to have a healthier, but also a more supportive and compassionate society. So thank you so much for your time and all the best with your research going forward. Thank you so much, Angelique. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Follow all the latest Stellenbosch University news at www.sun.ac.za or follow us on all the largest social media platforms.